0: Hi, friends, and welcome to the Oak Roots Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Myrick, and I'm going to get you into today's Your Story So Far episode as fast as I can. Before I do, uh, remember that I'm available to have this same kind of talk with you. We can take a couple of hours to walk through your life story so far, and then you can choose whether you want to keep it for yourself or have it published like this one. We can even keep meeting after that first talk and work through some of what comes up together there, whether that's blockers that are keeping you from what you want to do next, or you getting some help around organizing or managing other parts of life. You can go to oakroots.net to see services available and what fees look like, or you can email me at sam at oakroots.net. So that's what I can do, but I always wanna make sure you know what I can't do. Uh, there's a lot, actually, but today what I mean is I can't provide mental health services. I am not a trained or certified counselor, and so sometimes these talks uh, or my coaching can start to sound therapy-adjacent. That's probably just because I've had a lot of therapy myself. There will be some times in these recordings where you might be thinking, why doesn't Sam lean into that comment more or, or press the guest a little on, on the issue around this or that? Uh, and the answer, once again, is that I'm not a therapist. I, I don't always know how to do that. Uh, but there is a lot I think I can help you with. And uh, not everybody has to go all the way to, to starting counseling when things are tough. Sometimes you just need someone to talk to or Or, who makes you feel less alone or or who can help you understand more about who you've been so far and where you could be going so if, if that sounds like what you're needing, I'm here to help. All right, Let's get into today's story.
1: Yeah, my earliest memories uh were here in Anchorage, where I am now. We lived with this uh, family, my parents and I uh they had two twin boys who were just like a year older than me. And I remember, like, dressing up in their armor, their plastic armor, and just a lot of my memories are, are in that house with them. It's where they also have been able, like, I've reconnected with that the parents of the family, not the boys. Um, and they remind me of things that I did or happened or um, that are pretty fun so I was around three um when we lived with them two to three I think and I totally had crushes on the boys and I was going (laughs) to marry them but I couldn't figure out which one and so and then when I was four um we moved out to Dutch Harbor on Alaska out in the Aleutian Islands here in Alaska and My very formative years and formative memories, I think, are from that, from that place. Just an island, small. I, my mom homeschooled me. I played outside in all weather. I had two best friends who I met within, you know, they, we lived in a parsonage, uh, the church parsonage, but there were two uh, apartments, I guess, and so as soon as we walked in the door, my dad knocked on, on their door and was like, hey, this is my family. And um, their oldest little girl, Sarah, came out, grabbed my hand. We went upstairs and played with Barbies. And that was it. And okay. um, and then her little sister, Amy, joined us at some point. And um, we've been connected at the hip kind of ever since. What yeah. what was
0: the move like? What precipitated that that move? You, you talk about living in a, a parsonage where where one or, or both of your parents mm-hmm. in ministry, or was that or was a parsonage yeah. just for rent? Or
1: they had been. Um, I I think it was because it's a small island and you can kind of get connected, and it was a place to live. I, my dad had come down earlier, um, and I, I don't know who he met or why. That's a key part of the story. I should go back and ask him. But um, in Anchorage, they had been in ministry um, with the uh, gospel outreach, which was an offshoot of the Jesus movement um, that started Mm -hmm. in Eureka, California. And so they were they met. I was born on a commune in in Oregon, Central Howell, um, just this little tiny don't blink kind of place, but at home. So they were heavily involved in that in that community, and then got sent uh, when I was a year old to to Anchorage to continue, and uh, one of the gospel outreach churches up here, and then um, that kind of imploded a little bit, <laughs> maybe a lot, and. Okay. Um, then my dad was looking for work elsewhere and we ended up in Dutch Harbor where a lot of people end up because the money's good and all of
2: that.
0: So, so our earliest memories are in Anchorage in that house that was shared with another family, those boys, yeah. then moving. Um, how far away is, is the island where you end up moving to from Anchorage?
1: It's about 800 miles so two and a half okay. hour flight.
0: So there's oh. no yes, Alaska is very very big. Uh, so that's that's kind of what I was curious about what <laughs> was what was the scale? Was there any way that you like stayed in touch with that family or those boys? Or but but that happened much later in life. It sounded like
1: I think my parents always stayed in touch. They were they had also been part of the gospel outreach church. That community of people, um, even though the, the church really doesn't exist anymore they have an incredible bond. Like, it's like, Oh, you're a geo person.
0: Um, okay. It's,
1: it's quite amazing. They can reconnect after 40 years and it's like nothing ever, ever happened in between.
0: And (laughs) then what about, um, other, other family dynamics, like, um, any siblings, what did your folks do when you were a kid?
1: Um, yeah, my, so we got there when I was four and then when I was, uh, Five, my middle sister was born molly my mom and i had to fly off the island you're not allowed to have babies out there for insurance reasons i guess we my mom and i spent uh, about a month or two i don't know <laughs> with my grandparents my dad's parents and then also uh, my mom's family also lives in oregon um so we were in salem and near all of the other family as well um and I don't really remember that time up until my sister was born. I remember that night very clearly and a a few memories maybe in between, um, you know, like my great grandma being there and, um, a little bit, but I think those are memories that people have told me. And so I'm like, Oh yeah, I guess that's true. So yeah. So my sister was born and my parent, my dad, I think, um, kind of looked for work for a while i'm not sure what he did at the beginning but he did start the newspaper out there that's still going the dutch harbor fisherman um and he and my mom did that together um and then he became a longshoreman and joined the union um so working on the loading and unloading the big ships and stuff like that and my mom she did like accounting um for you know freelance for a few people and homeschooled and just with a mom you know <laughs> a good mom
0: okay. <laughs> and- like did your dad have any background a- at all in journalism or starting a paper or he just he realizes there's not one on this island there's no source of local news i'm gonna figure this out
1: i think you figured it out he's a good writer and um he was in the, in the army, um, as, as he likes to say, a chairborne ranger. So during Vietnam, he was actually in Germany in the office. So he handled like, you know, transfers and payroll and stuff like that. And so he, he's like, that's where I really learned to write, you know, really well. (laughs) I think he was always really good at it, but, um, that's what he usually ascribes more of that journalistic kind of writing, like writing reports and stuff like that, probably. Um, And and he's just, he's a very, um, like, outgoing, can be friends with anyone almost instantly, and um, just kind of a, a, a really big, amazing personality. And so I don't think it was hard for him to get interviews or to figure out what was going on because you know he just he's just that kind of person where it just comes really easily and my mom's a good writer and um so I think between the two of them I'm not sure if they had a staff beyond them I remember like one time you know them being like ah we got to get this out the deadlines tomorrow or something like that but you know, all I was outside. I was playing with Amy and Sarah and building forts and mud pies, and I was very busy.
0: Good that that I think that's the way childhood is supposed to be. There's only so much that we kind of understand yeah. about what our what our folks do, because we're we're busy with the work of play. So, so you end up. You said your middle sister when you were four or five. It sounds like there's a it's another sister. Mm -hmm. And then you three spent a lot of time playing together. Were you in a a neighborhood? Or is that small, the small island really kind of more like, keep to your family since you were homeschooled? What was that vibe like?
1: So there's two sides to the island. It's basically like two kind of islands connected. Um, So there's the Dutch Harbor side and the Alaska side. And the Alaska side tends to be more of the community aspects. The Dutch Harbor side is more of like the commercial fishermen's where the airport is, a lot of the fisheries and canneries. And um, the on Alaska side is like, I mean, basically our world revolved around our backyard, which we happen to always live in the biggest backyard it, around. So near the church, it was a huge backyard and it had this little island there was a lake right next to us with the little island you could get to and the water was down and that's where we spent probably 90% of our time or me and, and Molly, you know, she kind of grew up and, but I was five years older than her. And so it took a while for her to catch up. And, um, uh, yeah. And then, so that, and the swing pool, which was at the high school or the, the, the school I don't think they had a, they had a, they didn't have them separated at that point. Um, but they had a huge, awesome pool and many, many, many of our memories are, are in that pool. So yeah, it was, it, you know, it was very, it was like very tight knit. I didn't feel like I needed anybody else around, you know, other than just Amy and Sarah, but there were other kids in the, around, um, my husband, Jamie, who was part of that little gang, uh, few other kids, you know, from church and that we just kind of, grew up together we were always you know but it was really like as far as going far afield it wasn't like i could walk to jamie's house or anything like that they had to be at church or something you know so you know everything was like within these like our little tiny area and so to what we could you know once our parents finally you know like okay you can cross the street by yourself to go to the pool by yourself I guess now and you know, yeah it was oh, I loved it I love being outside I loved I love it just I think that's where my my body memories are like when I go back and I feel the wind and I smell this the the place and it's like, you know, it's connected to my core. And immediately I am myself again that I had not remembered from being far afield. You know, my actually Amy and Sarah and I were able to go back um about five years ago all together. And they hadn't been back in a long time um since they had left when they were like 14, 14 and 13, I think. And it was just surreal to be back in this place that really hadn't changed a whole lot. The roads were paved. That was new, you know, and then to like, we were just on the cusp of salmonberry season, which are like, they're, they, they have the same form as like blackberries. Um, They're really big, but they're red and orange. And they taste kind of like, like a soury, um, sweet kind of I guess I don't really know how to describe it it's not like orange but it's also like not like raspberries but it's very unique taste and I found one while we were like a few that were that were early ripe and Amy and I I was like Amy look I found some so we both like it was like taking communion together we both popped it in our mouth at the same time and it just it was so it was such an amazing trip back in yeah. time. Um, so I think all of you know we left when I was nine um, we moved back to Oregon and um, my mom was pregnant with my third sister. Um, I just have three sisters um Carrie that was that was probably like the first you know it was like the first real like, I, I have to kind of figure out how to handle this. Like, I don't think I ever really got over the grief of that move until kind of later when I started to enjoy some of the things that being in the lower 48 has to offer and being in bigger towns and stuff like that. But I, I, I I know, I never, I never quite got it because there's no place like it. It is wild. It is yeah everything is available to you you know you're free in a way that you know your body is constantly in the elements um yeah all we could the three of us you know when we went back was like just that body memory of like remembering moments that we wouldn't have remembered if we all three hadn't been together which was so cool we got to go out on a boat just like one of those little like you know, put an engine on the back of it kind of thing, (laughs) which is very common. And that was something I hadn't really ever been able to do when I was younger. Like I remember being on the boat and stuff, but, but being able to have some of the more like adult experiences, um, like we had a whale show up and so they turned off the boat and the whale just circled us and kind of came up and i mean it's like right there we're in a very tiny boat that is tinier than this one and it was just it's up to this whale but like the
0: whether whether my life continues or or, or not yeah
1: yes exactly exactly (laughs) but it was like the salt spray when the boat was going that all of us were like oh my goodness where have i been this whole time like that just you know, it was, it was magical in a way you can't get unless your body memory is like there, you know?
0: I love, I love that story from you. And and it made sense. Like right before you said it, I was already thinking that that's probably compounded by there being no other place like, like that. Um, Like we might all have like a, you talked about the taste of the berry. Like we might all have memories of like, what our, our mother or father cooked or, or grandma's chicken casserole or something. But we could get that. Mm-hmm. We have to get it from that person. But if we move away, mom still knows how to make that mm-hmm. omelet or like whatever the thing is. But like for it to be tied to the land or, or that place, I've never even heard of a salmon mm-hmm. berry before. Like uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to mm-hmm. research it like crazy after this because I know raspberries and blackberries look a lot like that. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know there's probably like lots of others too um, but the way you you talk about that and and taking yeah. it almost as communion I think is a is a really powerful picture and I'm glad you had that that chance to do that so how old are you yeah, so when the when the move I in, occurs
1: I was nine and and I there was part of me that when I look back I feel like that was probably a good time for me to move. Um, the community had kind of grown my, um, one of my other aunts and uncles, um, my dad's brother and his family had moved there and, uh, we weren't in the parsonage anymore. We'd moved kind of like two streets over. Um, and it was like this really big, big backyard kind of thing. Um, but there were houses all around it. So we all kind of shared this, um, this spot and it was right next to the, um, to, to the ocean, um, to front beach. That's what we called it. The, so the dynamic in the, in the friend group had changed a lot. Another family had moved into one of the houses there. They just moved there and didn't get along with their girls very well, or their youngest was our age. Their two older daughters were, you know, older and they were really nice. But it was just kind of it was like that that first kind of like experience where you're like, I I like other people. I think I like just my people. And I don't know what to do with these other people who came here. You know, they all were missing their old homes. And, um, you know, my cousins were missing Oregon. And, you know, the other girl was missing Wasilla and here in Alaska. And, you know, it was just like look we don't like it like come on you know and i and they were bringing a lot of drama into it which i had not experienced because me and a- it was me and amy and sarah and we had no issues ever <laughs> it was just a lot and i i that caused me a lot of stress i didn't know quite what to do with all of the the different dynamics that were starting to pop up not that i wanted to leave i definitely didn't but looking back you know, like Jamie continued, he graduated from high school and all of that there. And, you know, and, and the realities of being in a small town as a teenager, you know, that he talks about and others talk about just being, you know, the drama just continues and you also don't know what to do when you're getting older and you maybe have more freedom, but there's nothing to do really because Mm -hmm. you're done making mud pies, unfortunately. And So, you know, looking back, I go like, it was probably a good time for me to go, but you know, there, there wasn't, I just had different drama it, but it didn't, but I think moving when I did, it didn't taint my childhood in a way that for Jamie and others where it's harder for them to just, just remember their childhood versus like some of the other stuff that Happened
0: later on. Yeah, that that makes sense to me too, the the way, as you tell it, um, I almost, I had some similarities, not maybe as small a town, not on an island in Alaska, but, but growing up in a, like a 2,500 person rural area where I loved it as a kid, not only was the the town small, but we lived like a mile outside of the town uh, and had a couple of acres of land. And so my younger brother and I just ran all over and. Cut down trees and made mud pies, and we were outside all the time: kickball, baseball, BB guns. Like, and, and I loved all that up, up until like family dynamics changed for me at like ten when my when my parents split up, and then and then adolescence comes and hormones come, and like and it becomes like a country song or something where all you can't wait to get out of the small town. And I definitely had that. Of like mm-hmm. I want to get into the big city. I want to experience real life, and and this weird thing happens that I don't want to put words in your mouth. You'll tell your own story later, but but this weird thing happens that you're getting maybe to live out at least parts of, uh, and I'm still not. Which is once you get older, you those roots or like those practices. I, I don't want to go there and make mud pies anymore. I just want to sit on the back porch and listen to the birds and. Uh, and enjoy the sunrise. And, um, and I, and I, I, I don't get to do that much. And so I, I think I know what you mean about there being this time where I don't know that it's quite as crazy as like the, the, the rumspringa concept or anything where a uh, small community, small religious community, and then we've got to break out and go see the world. And then there's this desire to, to come back to what we first started with.
2: Yeah. There,
1: there's definitely that aspect. I think I've moved a lot now, you know, that was like, I guess the second significant move because they moved to Anchorage or we moved to Dutch Harbor and then, you know, moving back to Oregon. And, and then since then, I've moved quite a bit and have come to appreciate and enjoy change for the most part. I mean, get bored easily, but also kind of that longing for that stability too. Yeah. Constantly having to like readjust and adapt. And, um, I think too, a lot of times I, you know, Oregon as a, as a kid, you know, when I moved there, I just, my, my memory, like going back to, to those places and, you know, I go back every so often, you know, cause I, my family is there and it just has a little bit of a bitter taste in my mouth a little bit. Like, it's just, I think just cause it was the place that I really really you know I had to like grow up all of a sudden and I had to um not not totally grow up but just it was new I had to find I didn't you know like I I was outside a lot but it was a different outside and I've had to do a lot of work around being like what was good about it like (laughs) there were some definitely good things you know we lived with my my grandparents my mom's parents um and on One hand, it was boring and hard, but on the other hand, like, there were these moments where I'd wake up and I'd look out the window and, you know, they lived out in the country and the smell of the morning off the, just, you know, the grass and the the wheat or, you know, all of that kind of wildness. There's been part of me that's just like, I wish I could go back and just have that moment, you know, and have that have that again but I think too part of that is that that house doesn't exist anymore and both my grandparents have passed and you know where you're looking for that but it was another place where I experienced a kind of like innocence and an ideal space my grandparents were Mennonite and my grandma was you know pretty traditional she wore the cap and she made all of her dresses since she was like you know two and <laughs> She never stopped and, you know, and they never rearranged their house and it was glorious. So everything was always the same. It always smelled the same. You had the same options for breakfast. You had the same options for dinner. You, you know, she always knew what you liked to eat. So she always made sure it was there. And, you know, it was just fantastic. And and then after my little sister was born or like right before she was born, we moved to uh another house. We lived with some people. They had, uh, they'd arranged the upstairs to be a mini, um, like a little apartment for us. And, um, so that's where my sister Carrie was born and with the same midwife that my mom had for me and for Molly, you know, and then that was kind of a, an interesting place to be. Again, they were geo friends. Um, and some good memories, some, you know, just weird or not, you know, more memories there and trying, started riding bikes a lot more around. And I met a friend and she was cool, but it wasn't the same kind of connection. I never had that same kind of connection really. I think until I got married um, with a friend. Um, so that was hard to kind of figure out, like, I, even at nine and 10, I wanted something that felt safe and bonded and like, you know, and Shirley with Diane, you know, and Anna People's mm-hmm. like the bosom friend, you know, um, and that was always really hard because, you know, when you're in fifth grade, yeah, it's not what, <laughs> that's not what other people are looking for necessarily.
0: You've shared already a couple of times about like um, being being born on the commune, um, the living with a family that had the two other boys, now living upstairs with another family. But I'm curious if that has to do more with this shared faith tradition at the time that, that a lot of people want to be together, want to live communally or intentionally, or, or do you have a concept or have heard from your folks was part of that financial too, or that it was a way to, to save money. It could be both, but like, what, what are the dynamic, what, what made your childhood different for better or worse or with that? Good question.
1: Um, I never really felt a lot of the religious undertones of it. I mean, it was definitely like a similar culture. Um, but I think too, by that point, Geo gospel outreach wasn't as prevalent. It wasn't as strong um in some of those places that it had been like the commune was no more and but the friendships were there so it was like the the contacts the you know we we went to church and my mom my dad still was working in Alaska when we moved so he just would come you know like once a month or something like that for a couple weeks and then he'd have to go back so it was you know us and my mom really and I know she was kind of looking for the same kind of connection with, with the community again, even though we, you know, she has all brothers. So, you know, she doesn't have the same relationship with them as maybe me and my sisters do. So it was kind of, it was kind of, my mom and I very much mirrored each other in kind of what we were longing for with community and friendship, even though we were living, you know, with people that, that we'd been connected with and, and who were supporting us. And I think it was financial and I think it was, um, you know, there were still, it was still, we were still new back to Alaska, back to Oregon. Um, and so, uh, you know, not really knowing where to like put down roots or, you know, to find, you know, maybe they hadn't found a house yet. We did. My mom did find a place shortly after Carrie was born. Um, it was a little farm just right outside of the town. And it was, perfect it was glorious it was something that she had wanted for us to be able to be outside and to be free and you know just you know that's the kind of childhood she had up in you know scotts mills in the woods and um exploring and all of that um and it was just an idyllic little place that had pear trees and apple trees and a great little grape vineyard and a fig tree and we um my mom immediately put got me into horses when we got to Oregon, I think as an appeasement because I'd always been obsessed with them. But it worked. Okay. <laughs> I loved it. Um and so I got to go to first camp when I was like ten and eleven and you know, we bought a horse. It was a baby when we got it, so I couldn't really do a lot with her. I did do some halter shows and stuff like
2: that.
0: What did uh, you mentioned homeschooling earlier? Uh, and then with with the moves, did, did the homeschooling always continue with the moves? Um, did, did you do that up through like high school age?
1: I begged my mom to go to to go to public school when we first got there because that's where my friend, the one little friend that I had made, um, she was in public school, and I really I was like. You know, and my dad was like, "Let her go and have some friends and stuff." So I'm glad I went. It wasn't. It kind of proved to me that that's not for me. <laughs> it was hard. <laughs> you know, there were a lot of different dynamics. There were just. I sort of wonder if there was like. I've always been smart, but, I, you know, like, I. I think where, you know, school is geared for people who can kind of learn by themselves, too. Like, yes, they're getting instruction, but you don't have the teacher just sitting down with you, like, trying to explain it 15 different ways until something clicks. So I didn't, there were just some, like, some math concepts and just other concepts, like, just easy stuff that I think kids who had been going to school kind of knew or picked up on. Um, intuitively, by that point, but I just did not have. So I, I learned a lot in that sense, but more of the implicit learning than the explicit. Like this is, you know, Columbus sailed in 1492 kind of thing. Yeah, you know, I mean the friend stuff was like, ugh, you know. And my friend uh, was in a different fifth grade class, so we didn't really hang out at all. She kind of just. Did her own thing and she was popular, and I was not popular, and you know, like, so just that kind of went by the wayside, I think. And um, so just you know, but so then after that, I went back to homeschooling, and you know, um, I continued on until I quit that and got my GED.
0: <laughs> okay, and then you've mentioned <laughs> so. uh Jamie once or twice already, uh, th- th- that he's come up, um. Mm-hmm. Staying in touch with him, how does that look and and when does uh dating actually start? You mentioned earlier you you couldn't decide which of the the brothers uh at three to grow up and marry at some point. Jamie becomes that instead, so like uh kind of walk me through that that relationship right. and anything else maybe that we've not covered uh about childhood or, or adolescence before we like move on some
1: yeah, so uh Jamie started calling me when we were in I want to say junior high. Uh, yeah, just kind of like I I'd, I'd seen him once since we moved because we went back after Carrie was born um, to to Alaska and um, and so I saw him then. I remember playing Monopoly and beating him um, and then so then yeah he just started calling me. I don't know why, but he did, and we kind of that kind of became the norm to talk every month or so. He'd call me on his phone card that he worked really hard to keep, (laughs) keep minutes on. And, uh, I never called him really, uh, for a long time, but my, my dad would joke, like, I'm fine with boys calling you as long as they're 3000 miles away. It's no problem. And (laughs) yeah, that just kind of continued through high school. And, you know, it was funny because like on one hand I'd be like, we're just friends. But of course, I was also thinking, like, I wonder. And then I was like, no, I don't want. No. Like, he's in Dutch Harbor. I don't really want to go back. Like, he just, you know, and my imagination was always going. But at the same time, I was like, no, you know, like, no, it's just Jamie, you know. and But at the same time, as, as I got older, I realized I was more and more dependent on that relationship just that friendship like just to be able to talk and to have somebody who knew you and um he was always easy to talk to and I you know it wasn't just like I don't know silly conversations you know he's always good at asking good questions and listening and but I, I definitely wasn't online with like pursuing it as a relationship as like a romantic relationship until basically he just kind of called me up when we were like 22 22 um and he was like hey i i realized i'm in love with you and it's totally fine you don't have to say anything and i was like uh good because i don't know what to say (laughs) (laughs) i basically like later i told him i was like um you know i'm totally willing for god to like you know, change my mind. But at this point, that's not how I feel about you. And, um, okay. And I was proud of myself for leaving the door open because I tend to like things being a yes or a no. Then he came in, um, he and his brother came for Thanksgiving. We had agreed on that, that he would just come for Thanksgiving. We could actually talk in person and all of that. And by Thanksgiving, I had been convinced that he was probably the one and i don't know what i was you know like i remember talking to my cousin um and i told her you know in the girl gossipy kind of way like oh yeah you know and um, she's like what are you thinking what are you doing you have somebody who's known you your whole life who just said he loved you and you're being ridiculous and i was like you're right. I am being ridiculous because I have in my imagination how I will meet somebody and how I will form a relationship. And I had a different oh. story in my head and he didn't fit that story. And really that was, that was at the core of it where it's like, sometimes you can't recognize because you've told yourself a different story. Um, yeah. And so at that point it became much more open and realizing like, maybe I don't have all the fluttery feelings that I anticipate, but more of just like, he knows me and I know him. Mm-hmm. And after he told me that I was, you know, there was a period in between summer and November when I was just super bored. And my mom, was we were all just bored. We didn't have any like drama happening around us. And my mom was like, you should join eHarmony. And I was like, I should, that's such a great idea. Like, <laughs> And I did it just kind of in the, cause I was bored. And so I ended up talking to a couple people and, and then I just realized immediately I was so exhausted from having to tell my story and wade through the dynamics. And when I had somebody who already knew and, but I had to do the comparison. I had to kind of like, you know, I don't know kind of see what else was out there kind of thing um Mm -hmm. in in my own innocent kind of way and then he came in november and we talked and um i basically like you know totally snuck up on him in the sense of like okay here's how it is i was very practical about it it was like i think you're the one like, what would I do with you if I met somebody else? Like, I would just want to talk to you about it, and that's probably not appropriate. So we should hmm. just get married. <laughs> I was <Okay>. super romantic.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I yeah, mean, um... you're you're still together, uh, decades later, and I've <laughs> I've I've seen firsthand the affection and and love and and PDA, and yeah. uh, so uh, um yeah, my assumption is at some point you know some of those things kind of <laughs> come along, but. Uh, it's, uh, yes. it is, a, it is a funny start to the story and it, it's, it's so insightful mm-hmm. in some ways for you to have, um, like some of those thoughts maybe about love or commitment or how important the, the knowledge is, the relationship of another person is like that sense in which we are yeah. a witness to someone else's life when we're, when we're married yeah. or have a partner. Um, that you could perceive all that maybe a lot younger than a lot of people do who first dive in headfirst with the the romance piece or the fluttering, as you mentioned, and and then aren't mm-hmm. aren't as sure about all the other stuff like when it gets hard. Um, so I, I think that's an interesting way to go about it. Um, I'm sure you're really grateful for that friend who kind of talked some some sense into you. Um,
1: exactly. So yeah, we got married six months later. We didn't date. We just got engaged to got married.
0: Okay. <laughs> and what is uh what is newlywed kind of life or what are those first years of life look like together for you? The the moves, the jobs, um you know, I, I I'm not sure uh at, at what point or if you you want to delve into health. Um kinds of just you know, what, what does what does early adulthood look like for for you? Um
1: uh-huh. Getting married was great. We, I moved to Chicago because that's where he was going to school. Um, he'd been in school one semester so far. It started in December. And we got married in June. And it was good. It was lovely, but it was also, um, you know, definitely an adjustment. Um, here I am in the big city. I've never been in the big city before. I'm taking, we don't have a car. We're taking the L, the train everywhere, and, and neither of us were working and i think we were just kind of in this like haze or this bubble of like well there's money coming in somewhere like he's owed some money from a summer gig that he did at some point and so money was definitely a factor because we had really none (laughs) you know newlyweds usually do um but we had an, an immediate you know friend group um that he had started to be a part of, he was part of the university, um, leading worship. And, um, so I came into his friend group and was immediately just taken in and absorbed and, you know, new best friends immediately. And that was, that was new and wonderful, obviously. Um, I had I had some good friends, um, in high school. Uh, we lived in Colorado by that point. We moved to Colorado when I was 15. And I think just to go back a little bit, another a huge uh, underlying aspect is that I was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis when I was four months old, very healthy in Dutch Harbor as a kid, um, not so healthy, uh, started to not be as healthy in, um, uh, in Oregon. And so that was part of the adjustment period just... Started to go to this regular CF doctors more and um went into the hospital the first time when I was twelve. Um and then, you know, kind of struggled on and off with different bouts of just stuff that comes with CF. Um, I was coughing up blood a lot as a kid. So there was a lot of like the back and forth with that where, you know, on one hand it it is dramatic. It sounds dramatic. Um, but the, the remedies at that point were just rest. Um, so <laughs> it a lot of rest. <laughs> um, and then high school when we were in Colorado, um, I was in and out of the hospital a lot more. I was, um, uh, on oxygen at home for the first time doing IV medication at home. Thankfully it didn't last the oxygen part didn't last too long but it was a huge blow to me um and there was a sense that in myself a lot of a lot of thoughts around my own death not taking my own life but just trying to deal with kind of the reality and so kind of being in a in a more contemplative but darker darker place i think in my mind uh definitely just a, just a lot of, a lot of dynamics happening within myself. Um, and so part of the, the question for me before getting married was, should I even get married? Like, is that fair to that person when I really don't know? And I don't think that I will last very long because, you know, I kind of had to orient myself, I felt like I had to orient myself into a place of acceptance um, because the running theme, as far as, you know, religiously was that I was going to be healed at some point. And so Mm -hmm. all through, you know, being in gospel outreach and being, and then we went to the vineyard church for a while in Oregon and was involved in like the renewal that was going on at that time that was coming out of um, Toronto Mm -hmm. Um, going to different like youth conferences and you know I was I was very enthusiastic I was an enthusiastic Christian I loved the renewal I loved all the aspects of it I felt like I had those manifestations of the Holy Spirit and I was very affected by it and but became less and less affected um, or more and more not doubting, but just going like, um, okay, so what happens if I'm not healed? Um, what do I do then? Like, y'all aren't really, you're you are admitting that God could say no, but you're not telling me what my life looks like if it's a no.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, And so there were a lot of those, you know, I was having those thoughts mostly privately. I didn't feel like I could really... Yeah, if I did talk to people about it, I don't remember, but I don't think that I really did because most people were really like, you know, you don't admit to doubt. You don't, you know, that's like, you know, a doorway gateway for, you know, the devil to come in. That's the devil talking to you, you know, making you doubt, you know, and you, know, you have to be like Daniel and pray for a million years or 21 days or whatever for the angel to appear. Um, So there were just a lot of like religiously psychological things that I was also trying to like think through part of how I dealt with that was to kind of go to the other side of it and, um, not give up, but I think allow, allow the space to, to be, to kind of learn to hold the tension. I think a little bit like staying open to healing, but also realizing like, It's not happening. And my 18th birthday is quickly closing in on me. (laughs) I don't know what to do. And so then, um, and there was a point, I think when I was, I don't know how old I was, maybe 18 or 19. I feel like when I just told my parents, like, look, I I need a break from people laying hands on me and praying Mm -hmm. for me. Like, if they want to pray for me, they can do that in the privacy of their home. I am not in control of what they talk about with God. But when it comes to doing that directly with me, I'm going to just say no for a while. I need a break. I cannot handle, um, yeah, I, I, I can't handle the look in their eyes. I can't handle that burden of yeah. their relationship with God being on the line in that moment continually. Like, wow! Thankfully, they totally backed me. My dad, especially, um, like absolutely. I will tell people, no problem. I got it. So I think at that from that point on, there was definitely like a I have to figure this out, and I have to know how to learn how to take care of myself. I still am a Christian. I want to be a Christian. I I believe in God, but I I I have to figure out how to hold this and my evangelical upbringing and the the there's not a lot of language here for the no there's not a lot of language for where i find myself in this moment and very very um and and moving on in my future in this way not healed
2: yeah
1: you know so there there were quite a few things that happened to me And thoughts and different stuff that happened within kind of that, I would say like 16 to till I got married, really that I was having to, I got pneumonia at one point when I was like 21, I think 22, I was not well, you know, I would be well for a little bit. I would try stuff. I would, you know, I signed up for community college classes or, you know, and it's, the main reason why I didn't go to college was like, one, I didn't have the money, but two, I didn't have like the psychological will to overcome all of my health setbacks. You know, a lot of people do, I don't know how, but they do, they just do the next thing. And
2: I'm like, I don't
1: know how you're doing that. Um, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do either. So you kind of have to have like a goal if you're, you know, I was like, just seemed kind of like I, I wasn't given that context of just, like, improving your overall, like, knowledge and intellect. and Yeah. Um, I saw it much more vocationally. Like, I don't want to be a doctor or a journalist or a whatever. You know, like, I didn't have that vocational... Clarity.
0: W- w- was that informed by the kind of time frame c- components, or like w- what was your understanding as a child and an adolescent, or in your early twenties about prognosis? Or you, t- you talked about like struggling with, you know, with your mortality or or, or death. Like m- most of your life, you've not you 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 did not have quote unquote healing, or or, or at times it sounds right. like even like a, a hope uh, of it. You you, you were weighed down by that. I would have to think that impacts things like, what am I gonna be when I grow up? Or like, what am I gonna do with my life if I'm if I may not have a lot longer? is that a right assumption?
1: Yeah, the prognosis, um, you know, my parents never really talked about it with me, which was good. Um, I was kind of insulated from some of those numbers, but I also knew them in the sense of like, when I was sixteen I got um really, really sick. And, um, so I ended up at Denver children's hospital for a week or two prior to right before Christmas. Um, and remember the head CF doctor pulling my mom and I into his office. And basically he just kind of predicted my life with CF and he was like, you know, you'll you're okay for now, but you probably need a trans- a lung transplant when you're 30 and blah la, la. And I-, I just I don't remember anything else he said, honestly. I was like, mm. huh? Like, what? You know, and, and I knew I was sick. I knew I was struggling. And um there was also this um uh, weirdly enough, we when my parents moved out of this house uh when I was like, oh well. 18, 19, 20, and I found, um, I found this newspaper article that had been saved, but it was like literally just sitting on an empty bookshelf in the house, and I picked it up, and it was about this girl who, it was like her obituary or something, and she had had CF, and, and it was basically like her life, she, you know, she had, you know, rebelled, from the strictures of CF when she was like in her teens and then she got married and had a kid and then she died like I don't know it must have been in her mid-20s or something I don't know but she was young I wasn't very far off from that. <laughs> I was like what why is this sitting in here like who has mm-hmm. read this and then also like uh okay like I didn't keep track of other people with CF. I'd met a few when I was in the hospital a couple of times in Oregon. Um, I don't know. I mean, it it was like, I knew it was a serious illness. I knew it was a considered a childhood illness. Like when I turned 20, my mom came to me and was like, Hey, you know, I'm, you're doing so good. And I'm so excited, you know, and just thank God that you're still here because this is when they told us you wouldn't make it to, or like, this was your that You would live to your 20. And I was, totally fine you know i was fine ish at that point i wasn't near death at that point but i was like great you know and and i think that's where my faith did kind of boost me up because i did always kind of consider myself a little bit more exceptional like yeah, i'm sick but i'm not sick like other people with cf like
2: hmm. you know
1: um i'm doing really good and i'm pretty healthy and like but I was also pretty insulated from the CF community. I was not seeking that out. I didn't, I, there were times when I did, and then I would just be like, okay, back out. Like, you know, you know I would find like people that I was interested in who were blogging or who were doing stuff. And then you realize like, oh, they died like five months ago or something oh, like that. Gosh. And so wading through those, kinds of it's like, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm totally okay. And then you're like, but this is the reality is like, you're okay until you're not okay. And that's, that's just, that's, that is what it is. You know, and I can't speak to all my parents held or continue to hold, um, or my sisters or other people that really love me. Um, and everybody, copes with those kinds of realities differently you know i would say like most of us just try not to think about it people would ask me how are you doing and they're like oh, i'm doing really good i'm into all this stuff and they're like no no no. like how are you doing and i'm like oh yeah that's right i have an illness and they we're asking about that you know i'm i mean i'm not you know on one hand it's like i'm not doing a great job of of telling you know kind of like the fullness of kind of like the bipolarness of. Like, I really didn't give a lot of thought unless I had to to my health because it took up so much of my life anyway. I wasn't going to be, like, researching stuff or, like, I wasn't interested. That was, like, I've never been interested. It's always been completely boring on one hand to me. And even the attention that I get is, like, double-sided, you know, where you you know, I'm like, well, first, who am I talking to? Then what do I feel like I can say without, you know, because I'm a, I'm, I'm not here to make people uncomfortable. Like I'm, I'm not that kind of personality. That's just going to keep pushing the line. Um, And, you know, so just kind of going like, I mean, I've had people recently like, how are you doing? Like, tell me about it. And I'm like, do you want to know my, my, thought pattern through the whole thing? Do you want to know like just the technicality and the medical side? Like, I don't, I don't know where to start. And I think I've always kind of felt that, that um, kind of thing. But when I got married, I was in a pretty healthy space and I felt like I was actually like, like getting married eased a lot of the internal stress that I think I'd been feeling just in myself, in my body, existentially. Like, I, on one hand, it was like, I was such a relief to get married because now at least I had some direction in my life and I
2: mm-hmm.
1: knew I couldn't live on my own. I, you know, I, I'd get sick too much. I couldn't hold down a job. I, it didn't, you know, like I didn't have the resources to be able to be fully independent. And so honestly, the best way to get out of the house and move out of my parents' house was to get married. Okay. <laughs> Not that I yeah, used so, him for that, but it wasn't added benefit.
0: Yeah. It, it, some of those things um, get easier or, or take some, some what would have been like yeah. concerns or issues off of your plate by also falling in love with Jamie and and choosing him. Mm -hmm. I I get I get what you're saying. So how long does that last? Or or like, what is um, the the, the things that 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 makes easier or a little um, fuller for you? Like, um, does that continue? Uh, What's what's the next kind of landmark for you related to Marriage or or health or like your your sense of of self,
1: um, as, yeah, marriage, marriage was great. I I think um I definitely had to kind of re um reorient myself into like as an independent person um who was married like. I'm not Jamie and Jamie is not me. And we do not create an entity together. (laughs) Like, um, if you meet Jamie, you haven't met me and vice versa. Um, I remember like having this dream or like about three months into the marriage, I just found myself like super angry at him. Like he hadn't done anything. But I was just like, so, 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 so just like, you are on my last nerve, dude. And I woke up early before him at one point, And I just remember thinking like, I haven't been alone in three months. Like, hmm. that's a long time to not be alone for somebody who really does need that. I hadn't quite identified it that way because it would never been an issue. But, um, so I realized I just, so I had the morning to myself and I journaled and I, and I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> good thing to realize like early on. And so I think from then on, it got better in the sense of like, I had a little bit more of a sense of myself, um, based mm-hmm. on that. I love people. I need to see people. I want to talk to people usually I want to talk to them. Like I need to have a good conversation in order to feel like that time was really beneficial for me, but also just, you know, hanging out with people I'm close to is, is huge, but yeah, I I do need time alone, um, for sure. And to kind of regain a sense of myself on the Enneagram, I'm a type two, so I can tend to throw myself into other people's Lives and issues and um, and kind of forget my own needs pretty quickly. I didn't know that at that point, but you know, definitely <laughs> there.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's something that uh, that you and I would not have gotten to talk about w- when we saw each other a lot more like a decade back, and I feel like it became a lot more popular. Yeah. In the last five to ten years uh maybe you mm-hmm. knew about it before then yeah. um but i i line up with some of what you've shared already and i'm a three on the enneagram but with a two wing so uh, which make which okay. you and i line up on that component with the like service or like wanting to help other people wanting mm-hmm. to be involved in people's lives like um b- but it but there are negative there are consequences to that too and the big one is your own mental health, uh, your own physical health, which I imagine only made things tougher for for you and and your illness.
1: Yes. I would say, though, my illness really did a good job of curbing um, my own immature tendencies um, in the sense that I literally could not do some of the things that I wanted to do for people, you know, of like being you know, getting as involved as I would want to, or being as available as I would want to. Um, so I, I think that, that, that health component to being a two where it's like, I had to mature pretty quickly, um, in going like, I literally can't do this. And it's not healthy for me. Like it's too heavy for me to, to sit and stew about how I can't, like, I need to, I have to let it go. Like, you know, and being convicted quite a few times in just going like, you're not God, like you're a person who can help them at some point, but you're not the end all be all of like their personal, like success or not, or whether or not they are dealing with unnecessary stress or (laughs) anxiety. Like I'm not the person who gets to fix that. And, um, Hmm. and so, you know, it's, uh, I think in that sense, it's been having that health component as a two early on was super helpful. Um, I think I would have gotten into trouble, more trouble early on if I hadn't had that kind of like, as like a, a, um, something to reel me in a little bit, not to say that I, you know, went gracefully. (laughs) <laughs> to let things go, <laughs> depended on what it was. But um, but one of the things that I did figure out, though, was in that people need to be able to give, and it's, like, innate. And so I kind of was able to flip the switch in going, like, well, I fill a need as somebody who is, quote-unquote, in need. So they can give to me and feel really good about themselves. It was just fascinating how I was able to, you know, there's still that component there where I can kind of sense like, oh, they need a job. Like, they need to, they need something to make them feel good. And so if I let them wash my dishes, feel really good. And a lot of times it worked. It was like, I wasn't like demanding people do that stuff, but kind of just like more intuiting of like, to be on the receiving end is a service. It can be. And so I'm helping fill a need by allowing that, um, by Hmm. expressing a need. Um, And so I think that was one of the ways I figured out how to get around my own limitations in being the giver but to understand sort of the the underlying stuff about well other people need to be givers too and they don't really know where to give a lot of times and well i can provide that space and so it elevated the receiving (laughs) i didn't feel so kind of helpless
2: yeah because
1: i knew what i was doing whether or not it was manipulative i i would definitely say it, it. It was right on that line. Um, if, you know, it can be, but um, hopefully I walked it okay. You know, but it was something I. It, it's kind of how I, it was a huge coping mechanism.
0: Okay, it's not something that I've thought a lot about, or that I remember talking with you about. Uh, even I, I never perceived in the in what the five to seven years that that you and Jamie were in Austin and we were in community mm-hmm. together. like, I, I never perceived that there was any malice or selfishness uh, in that kind of thing on your part. I, I always perceived that you were someone who um, was comfortable asking for help or, or sharing what, what needs might look like and very comfortable receiving yeah. help Um but I never knew, and and very grateful for it. Um, we've talked some before about the the prayer component and the healing component, and I understand like the baggage of that from from a childhood faith or from be, being someone who's got a, a chronic um, illness and wrestling with that. Um, I've wrestled with that a lot the last nine months since since our car accident and and my broken back, and like the the prayers get old. Um, but yeah, I'll let you. Mm-hmm break like when i'm getting out of the hospital uh, sure you can make me dinner or give me a ride or but i've yeah. i've never heard you frame it or anyone else frame it as like something that's actually not only beneficial to you practically but beneficial to the the giver spiritually mm-hmm. psychologically emotionally it does feel good to help yeah. people um so that that's right. very interesting to me What was the point where you realized that? Or like, when do you think you really started to lean into that?
1: Maybe after I started to understand the type two and the Enneagram a little bit better, realizing like, oh, yeah. Or I was able to name it in that sense of like, I'm trying to meet a need. But here's a need that I do perceive that I can meet consistently. (laughs) Because I consistently need help. I'm not like it, it takes a huge burden off if somebody comes and cleans my kitchen or brings me some a dinner or, um, or just hangs out with me or comes with me to the store. Like when we lived in Austin and I had the women's group, like, I remember at some point I was, I was kind of sick, but I was okay. I was recovering. And so one of the girls and I, we went to Costco and she helped me carry everything and get everything. And I was just like, it was like meeting my need as far as like quality time with somebody that I really enjoy being with. And also just, she was there to help me because I couldn't do that kind of like, you know, Costco's a workout and, um, and like, that's the kind of like space where I felt like, Oh, I mean, this is what I want in my life, whether I'm healthy or not. I just want people to like run errands with and go get coffee while we do it and enjoy the process. And be, having that extra component of health in there helped kind of, you know, I think maybe not feel so silly and being like, hey, do you want to go with me and carry everything? <laughs> I'd say like health-wise in Chicago, we lived there for three years. I was pretty, pretty healthy most of the time. I, had, I was seeing a CF doctor and needed to like up my breathing treatments and some things like that. That were a major bummer to me, but, um, just cause they, it was like two hours every day of breathing treatments, um, cause I had a horrible little machine and mental setback more than physical. I was still able to hold down a pretty full-time job and all of that at that time. And then in Austin, when we moved there, um, in 2008, um, I was good for a while until about, uh, when we had our fire in 2010. And then that kicked the stress of that, we had an apartment fire, lost pretty much everything. And um that that kicked off a new season of trauma that I was not able to place, even though I was exhibiting all of the signs, I was like, it didn't feel that traumatic. I mean, I was fine, (laughs) but I couldn't make any decisions. I was overwhelmed with a text or an email to, to respond to, even from my mom. I, I mean, I was not okay. And, um, and health wise, I deteriorated pretty quickly in those next like five to six, seven years. Oh. Um, it was, it was, that was, I, you know, and I, I still feel myself kind of recovering from it but also it's mixed in with transplant and it's mixed in with the other stuff too now you know like so um you know and it was right after the the fire that um found out I couldn't have kids and Mm. that was so the fire kind of masked kind of gave me a good excuse to be really depressed but people didn't know why I was actually depressed they just thought it was the fire, which was fantastic with me because it was the first thing that that was really the first kind of major grief or major thing I was going through that I couldn't talk about
2: at the time.
0: Hey there, it's Sam again. I'm pulling away just for a second from today's story. Don't worry, we'll get back there in a minute. Uh, Seemed like a good time to remind you that you can have this kind of experience with me too. You owe it to yourself or to family or friends to take a couple of hours and chronicle your life story in your voice. Then you can choose whether you want to keep it for yourself or have it published like this one. Uh, Maybe that's all you want to do with Oak Roots, but if it would help to keep meeting for a session or two to talk through some of what comes up, I can help with that too. Just go to oakroots.net to see services available and what fees look like, or you can email me it's Sam at Oak Okay, let's get back to the talk.
1: Post fire. Um yeah, we had that I had that other component of grief happening um for me that I just kind of had to allow to be there, I guess. I didn't really know how to talk about it. Of course, it was also at a time in our in our social group where a lot of people were getting pregnant and having kids and, and that made it extra kind of raw and challenging. Mm. Um, and where I tended, I, I had already kind of had this foundation, I think of what I was reading and what was giving me life. I think having to work through my own sense of trying to find a belief system within Christianity that encompassed suffering that encompassed that, that God wasn't, maybe wasn't testing me to see what my faith could hold or how, 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 I guess how much I could press in to hold hope for something like healing. And so when, you know, the reality of, of saying like your body could not get pregnant. You could choose adoption or surrogacy or something like that. But just the, the reality of being pregnant needed to be off the table for me medically. So I think at that time is when I decided, um, I really needed a women's group and, uh, there wasn't, I had joined a small one and then the, the leader of that wasn't going to keep going with it. And so I remember actually coming to you who was the pastor of Mosaic at the time saying like, Hey, is there anybody leading a women's group? And you were like, no. And I was like, okay, I guess then I will do that. And that began, um, this season of life in which I led a women's group and wrote my own curriculum. And we went through, um, the first book that I had found was on, women mystics, um, and they were all Catholic women saints, Teresa of Avila and uh, Mechthild of Magdeburg, and just women that none of us really had knew about or anything. And the author wasn't necessarily a Christian. She was just very interested in medieval literature. And I found it very refreshing uh, to for these single women who did not bear children, these lives that they lived, and seeing God not just as Father but as Mother as well, and really starting to to expand my view of motherhood um, beyond kind of how our Christian culture was had limited it to of if you birth children or you adopt children, then you're a mother, and yeah kind of starting to think in a larger kind of spiritual sense of it of like, well, I, I actually been a mom for a long time. In a sense, I've been oldest. I have two younger sisters. I've always sort of mommed them or, you know, and not it's, you know, and, and also trying not to pull anything away from, from people who are literally raising children in their home and have that bond with those children. Um, but also trying to kind of broaden it to Mm -hmm. allow for myself to not be um, excluded from something that was innately part of my nature Um, in nurturing people and feeding people and giving unsolicited advice and, um, and bringing them to my table and, and, you know, counseling them or making sure they're okay. And, you know, and realizing like, I've been doing this for a long time already, um, just in my life, having people over and when Jamie was in college, like, you know, a number of the, of the kids there were my friends, but also people that I looked out for. I was the only one who knew how to cook in a tech school. Like,
0: (laughs) okay. Yeah.
1: They're all physics and math majors. And I'm the one who knows how to cook, you know? And so that that progression, that kind of, um, space where here I am literally bringing these women into my home who a lot of them were younger than me. A lot of them, some of them were motherless. Some were them, some of them, you know, were away from home for the first time or, and just seeing where I was able to come alongside, um, in a way and build this, group of women who were really searching beyond what our traditional birth faith had given us um, to own it for ourselves, to begin to own it for ourselves as women Mm. Um, and what that meant and what our relationship with God or even just our Christianity meant and is there a difference there? And so that was a really formative time, um for me and I think for them too, just to see what my what my gifts were, but also to kind of like help through that grief of going, there's more here in my for my life than than what this grief is telling me. Um so I kind of fast forward a little bit to um when we decided to move to Alaska. So my husband and I were you know, we'd always talked about going, coming back to Alaska and like, we would say things like before we die or when we retire or, or whatever. And then it just kind of came into this place of like, what are we doing? Like, we're at this mm-hmm. crossroads, like, no, we're not going to necessarily have kids of our, you know, maybe we'll adopt, maybe we'll foster. Cause we were kind of thinking in those terms at that point, but okay. Um, really what it came down to was like, I really wanted to love a place like Texans love Texas. And I didn't hmm. love Texas <laughs> Okay. and, um, and just going like that place is Alaska for us and okay. why are we waiting? And so, um, in 2016, we made the leap and we came here and it was good. I really loved my doctors immediately that I met, um, the CF clinic up here. I kind of regretted not coming sooner like i stayed i think we stayed in austin as long as we did because i really loved my team of doctors that i had and i was kind of afraid to like um i don't know see what else was out there um yeah
0: how do you make the decision on where to go in alaska i mean you'd lived in a few different places um yeah is there a discussion about Going back to the island, is there a discussion about being near where family is now, or did the quality of of medical care right. mainly play into it? Kind of how was that decision made?
1: Yeah, his it was a pretty easy decision. His parents were already living here, um, and uh, and then medically, you know, not a lot of like this is the main hub for medical care, like Anchorage is in Alaska you know okay. there are other places with clinics and stuff like that but usually if it's like anything complicated you always have to come into anchorage or go to seattle that felt pretty um i had been sick off and on for a while my health had really deteriorated since the fire um and uh and so within a year and a half of being back here my health Um, I was like in the hospital four times in a year, which was a record for me. And um, at least one of those times was like one of the hardest hospitalizations as far as like just how I was doing health wise. Um, I was in a lot of pain, which wasn't something that was normal. I had to like figure out a position. That felt like I could breathe. I kept just even on oxygen, it was hard for me to catch my breath. Um, Mm -hmm. And at that point, my, my CF doctor was like, Hey, I think it's time we start having this conversation um, around transplant. And I think, you know, I'd like you to go down to Seattle sooner than later to get established with the transplant team Um, to see if you need a liver transplant as well. Um, and that way, when the time comes, you're already established and you can just immediately move in because it's a little bit of a process to be, um, accepted and, um, you have to go through all these tests. It's like two weeks worth of tests and stuff like that. So if you're super sick and all of a sudden you need a transplant, you still have to go through all this stuff. Okay. Um, You don't just get to like cut the line.
0: Was that for faster you. than you expected it to be? I mean, did, did that come as a surprise to you? You mentioned earlier in our talk, like as a kid at some point, some doctor or a family member telling mm-hmm. you, like, you'll probably have to get a transplant at 30. Or mm-hmm. um, do you kind of shelve that away for decades? Or is it always in the back of your head or back of your mind that this is coming at some point? Like, What did it yeah, feel that's... like to hear that, that, it, that it's time?
1: Right. It it did kind of inform some of my decisions as far you know just like small little things like hey do you want to smoke or do this or do that you know and i'll be like no because i don't want to jeopardize any of my you know being accepted i was already like totally anxious about my brain was like, you have skipped some of your breathing treatments. They're not going to accept you. until you know, like you're okay. not a good candidate because you're unreliable or you didn't take this seriously in that one year or, you know, whatever. So I was overthinking it. And, you know, thankfully, a lot of the nurses were like, dude, we accepted these people. And yeah. they're like terrible patients. Like you're going to be fine, you know? Okay.
0: <laughs> it's nice to have some of that confirmation. Um,
2: yeah.
1: And, you know, so I knew it was kind of on the table. I, you know, it, it still came a little bit of like, oh, okay. Yeah. I guess we're here now. Um, you know, because they didn't really say like, once you get to this threshold, you know, because it's, it's not just a number, you know, it's not just your lung capacity. It's like how many times you're getting sick a year and like, how quickly are you deteriorating and, um, and all of that. And so, um, In December of 2017, I went down for my evaluation and then was, I mean, and I thought, I I had this expectation that I would be, that it would be like, okay, great, we've got you in the system, so go back home and, you know, like, whenever your doctor feels like you're getting sick a lot, then come back. And it was basically like, no, you're on this train and you will come back as soon as you possibly can to be listed.
2: Okay. And-
1: I was like, and they were like, and of course you'll need a a liver transplant. And I wasn't expecting that. I don't know why. I just had been like, oh, I get to keep the liver, and not that it super mattered, but at the at the you know it's like everything matters at that point where you're like, ah,
0: yeah. So the timeframe.
1: So so the the, timeframe
0: is like, kind of walk me through.
1: At the time, being listed.
0: So that happens a little faster than you thought it might. Like once you make the decision to start the process, yeah, and then and then what are what are next steps? Or like, what does the continuation of the process look like, including time? How how quick is it happening? Or um,
1: yeah, yeah. so I went down in December. My parents came with me um, and my husband Jamie um, because I needed. I asked them to be my primary caregivers, um, because we weren't sure Jamie was going to have to stay in Alaska to work. Um, and of course we just didn't know when the transplant would happen. And, you know, there was just a lot of unknown. So I was just like, Hey, just at least to start out, can you be, can you sign up to be the primary caregivers and then regroup at some point? Um, and so, yeah, so that was in December of, 2017 and then um basically they were like so come back as soon as you can and I was like okay how about April like I just wanted to get through my birthday I wanted to kind of like have time to settle and they were like that's fine you know like just come down when you as soon as you can you feel like you can and so so I had my birthday I turned 36 and um and had had my time to kind of like get stuff ready and Um, my cousin who lived about an hour away from Seattle offered for me to live at her house um, with her and her husband and and so that's where I went in April and um, thankfully I was still like in good enough health to be pretty independent and mobile and but I definitely was not ready for anything to happen like my I remember like you know, calling the team and, okay, I'm here. You can, you know, switch the, you know, switch me over to active or whatever yeah. they do. And they're like, okay, you're officially listed now. And we were talking to my dad and he was like, all right, we'll pray that it happens like within a week or something. And I was like, good God. No, like I need hmm. time. Okay. Like this has all happened so fast. I just need time to like get my head around this. Like, Um, I ended up having two and a half years of time to get my head around it, which I think was a little excessive.
0: So, so you were in, were you in Seattle that entire time? Like you two, two and a half years, you're living with a cousin and your parents. Um, Are you ever getting to fly back or is Jamie coming to you? Like, what is, what are those two and a half years like?
1: So my parents went back to Colorado and they ended up selling their house and, getting an RV and moving to Oregon. And so I never, they never lived with me and they never stayed with me necessarily. Um, the, The primary care ended up moving more towards my cousin and a local friend. I lived with my cousin for a year and then I was just like, I just, I need to be home. And the only way I can do that is to create my own home. So I got an apartment in Okay. Ballard, one of the neighborhoods, kind of like the fishing dock neighborhood of, I loved it because I could hear the seagulls and I, it felt, I just, I loved the neighborhood and I got, um we were able to get an apartment, you know, like in a great location and um, it was just lovely. And Jamie was able to finally come down and start living with me, I think in november or december of 2019 so he got to thankfully he got to be there and then got stuck there because okay
0: was already with you was already lockdowns with and okay
1: yeah and um and that honestly like how i kind of framed the the waiting period was like this was my sabbatical like this was a a chance for me to really you know i got to be a part i wasn't part of any like community stuff or family drama or, or just family stuff, you know, not drama, but just like, I got to cut all of my commitments and just focus on myself for as long as it, I got that opportunity. And, um, a lot of people with that get transplants and I'm sure other, other things too. Um, but I, 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 I got back into the CF community when I knew I would be listed. My, um, I joined a small group online and, um, kind of just sought that, sought out that support for the first time. It was like the first time I really had desired to be part of the CF community and knew that I needed people who had walked this path and, and maybe could help give me that kind of support. And that it's so specific that it's hard to talk about it with people who have never had an illness or, you know, just aren't walking that path. Like it's, you need to be able to be morbid. You need to be able to be, to ask, you know, hard questions and, and have people that are walking that path with you. And so that was super life giving and really great. And, but through that, I was able to meet more people who had been transplanted and had, um, undergone more stuff. And, and what I was noticing was that on the other end of it, they were really, really lost. They really didn't know who they were because part of what helped create their day to day and their, even their identities to a certain extent was being sick Um, Mm. and you know, the treatments and the stuff that you have to go through. And now you have a new body, you have time, you have breath, you have energy. What do you do? And um, and I went, okay, I can, I need to do some work around this. Like, yes, I'm a, you know, I'm pretty emotionally healthy person, but you know, I've been married for a long time. I've never lived on my own. There's just some things that, you know, and being a two on the Enneagram as well, where it's like, I'm kind of, I'm living in a dependent way where if my husband is hungry, then I'm hungry or, but Mm -hmm. maybe I'm not, you know, or, maybe I'm not a morning person or maybe I'm not an evening person, you know, like what, how would I function when it's just myself? And how do I know where to go for, to fill up, to really fill up spiritually and like, just feel like grounded again. And it was a really important space for me to be able to have that time to be like, I'm just responsible for me. I'm not responsible for anyone else, nor am I really responsible for a house in that first year. I didn't have any other commitments. I got to basically just do whatever I wanted to do while still continuing to take care of myself. And I I took a drawing class and I Hmm. really kind of leaned into art a lot more as... And found it very therapeutic, not necessarily something where I was like, wow, I'm an artist and I should start selling this. But it was more like, wow, I can just dive in here. And and this is lovely. So kind of feeling like I was finding those places where whoever I ended up being on the other side of transplant maybe those points of reference would change, but if I didn't know where they were, I at least had some old ones that I could go back to. Um, So that was, that was really important to me that I developed not just that. I really developed my sense of myself that I knew myself. And during that time, my, my philosophy too was, you know, I need to not, just sit around waiting. Like I need to kind of engage Murphy's Law here, and if I do stuff, then I sh- then I'll be interrupted. And so I have to mm. be doing stuff in order to be interrupted. You know, like okay. <laughs> like yeah. kind of trying to to reverse psychology the universe. <laughs> um, and so I got to co chair like the adult CF conference that online that we do for oh wow still kind of new. So I did that um, pretty early on and, into my into my listing. And then after that, I helped with other like adult CF conferences for families and for, you know, they had different um, themes or emphasis. Um, And so that was really great. I started a writing group by um, also helped start a, another small group um, with the theme being like life beyond illness. Okay. Two other ladies. And I figured out like if I'm going to start groups, I need to do it. I need to do it with a partner. It needs to have at least one other person so that if I am interrupted, um, somebody can take over and it's not just on me. And so that was a really good lesson to learn as well of just like, wow, having a partner in leadership is super important because one of the things that I did realize when I was doing the women's group was I felt really alone um, Mm. in trying to, you know, discern or think about new direction or what was happening. And, and I didn't really have, like, even if I was talking to one of the, you know, one or two of the other ladies in the group, they were still recipients. They weren't co-leaders. You know, and that, that, as you know, that's a very different role than just the participant. So those were, so I was just learning a lot of really good things about myself, about, about doing things, how to do things more sustainably, um, in a realistic way, like, dude, I'm human. I'm going to get called any minute. Like, and, um, and then in November, in October of 2020, like I kind of everything was done. Like I had just finished a bunch of, like, I just finished a conference. I just, I was kind of like between projects and I was like, I don't really know what to do. And my cat of nine years, who was just my baby had just died all of a sudden. And
2: Mm.
1: just kind of feeling like, wow, like the end of an era is over. Like, she really we got these kittens right out like a few months after our fire, and yeah they were just a huge part of helping us kind of find joy again and find this delight and um and they really shepherded us through like those years of right of grief and transition and like they definitely were not our babies. We were like theirs. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I always referred to her as my friend, and um her brother had died a couple years before, and
2: hmm.
1: um, and we had another cat, Pi, who we still have now. Um, but she and Pi and Carol just didn't get a lot. There was just like a lot of the little stuff. so there was kind of a relief when she did die of just like because I was kind of anxious about when I got my transplant that she'd be all over me and
0: okay. Yeah,
1: you know, just all of these little tiny details of of recovery from a major surgery. Um, And then so then in November, uh, right after the election, um, before anything was even decided, um, I got the call on November 4th and. I you know, it was a new nurse who called me and I had called my nurse that morning to tell her I had just coughed up some more blood and okay. I probably needed to start IVs again. And I was kind of like, uh. so I thought it was that when I answered the phone and he was yeah. like, Hey, and it was very anticlimactic. Cause he was like, Oh, this is your, he's like, well, I have an offer for you. And I was like, Oh, what? He was like, Oh, is this your first, like, yeah, for like, you know, I have some organs, and I'm like, it's like I was looking for a house or something. Like,
0: wow, yeah, offer is a very, like, an interesting word. So you hadn't yeah. been prepared at all for that, like in the process of of what that next step would actually.
1: I mean, I had. We'd had to take a class, and there was okay. just some stuff like that. So it was like I knew as much but you know, obviously, I hadn't got I hadn't even had a dry run, which sometimes that can happen where it's like, they think they've got lungs for you. But then once they go in, and they look at the lungs, they're not good.
0: Okay. Um, So it sounds like there's there's some kind of assumption like that on this nurses part, like, oh, you haven't been this far before.
1: Right. To hear like,
0: that question. Okay.
1: They were, well, like he just thought that I had been, I had most likely had at least one or two dry runs. And so okay. I was like, no, this is my first call. he's like, oh, okay. Well, I'll run you through some things and, you know, like, you know, make sure I didn't have, wasn't feeling sick or, you know, because if you have the flu or COVID, you're, you have to, it goes to the next person. Um, okay. And so, So then he called me back and he was like, all right, well, we're good to go. So if you can just be here at eight o'clock tonight and we'll get you checked in. And then surgery is tentatively set for 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. And I'm like, wow. Okay. Okay. So thankfully I had like my small group was meeting a half an hour later. So I was able to get on with a few of the ladies and just be like, so this is happening. Mm Mm-hmm. And, but I was super peaceful. I was just like, okay, like, I don't know, what am I going to need? And, you know, just going through the motions of, and I, I get to the hospital, I'm like, just happy and, it, you know, I'm like, okay, great. But I'm not feeling whatever it is that you're, that you're expected to feel. And, you know, I wasn't nervous. I wasn't, I was ready. I was super peaceful. I think that's like the, the most, you know, I internally, I was feeling like I should feel more frantic or more like, like, wow, this is happening or yeah. something, but you know,
0: like equal then, parts, f- fear or, or anxiety yeah, with something. hope and like excitement, and yeah. like, but that you're kind of just,
1: I was just like okay.
0: in the middle. Cool. of it. Okay. And,
1: um, but then once, uh, so I had, had, I had built up a relationship with uh, one of the chaplains there. He's really a great guy. And I had told him, you know, some of my process and thinking around like what I wanted when my transplant happened and, and kind of the grief of that. I was feeling of, um, basically a part of myself that was going to die tonight. Like it was mm. going to be taken out and laid to rest. And I felt that that was the hardest part I think mentally for me, um, you know, and then also the, you know, people would ask me silly questions like, so when is your, tr- your surgery going to happen? And I'm like, I don't know if you realize like somebody has to die, Damn. and then we have to be a match, and then we have to like just a- t- uh, just a host of like ignorant questions from medical professionals to you know just regular people on the street mm-hmm. um, and that was obviously like a part of the grief of just going like, you know part of my my process was like, I do not want to be in a rush like I feel like it is incredibly selfish of me to feel any kind of impatience in this process of waiting because it's connected to somebody and yeah i you know like there's a there's still a lot of like mental hurdles you have to go through of like this person isn't necessarily like like i'm not connected to them in the sense of like they're sacrificing their life for me it's an accident. Their time was up. They've decided that somebody else can have their organs um, when they die. Still, it's a, it's a thing, you know, like, yeah, in the larger destiny and, um, and God's will of life. And, you know, however, we're thinking through those um, larger, larger pieces, Um, of the unknown that so my prayer was always like I really hope that they're living their best life now and I really hope Mm. that they kind of can have a sense maybe of what's coming and be able to like make sure that their relationships are good and make sure that what they're doing is is bringing them joy and um and that they won't have regrets and that you know like just just going like I'm good. Yeah. I'm good. You know, like, yeah, I have to, I have to trust that the time that, that God's timing is perfect in this.
0: And that there's a really, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it, it sounds like you were at the start of explaining that. Like there's almost the idea that like the, I'm okay. The, the longer I can go or hold out the the more life they yeah. get to have or or yeah. like, with their loved ones or, or, exactly. or like experiencing joy, experiencing what the world has to offer.
1: I think the amount of time I waited and the amount of time that I had to like, just think and contemplate and, you know, have conversation, have really great conversations with people. And also like within that time, you know, I had a friend, you know, who was in that original cf small group who had his transplant and had also died um
2: Mm. yeah
1: all within the span of me waiting
2: um
1: and you know so there was just like a lot of life was happening other people had had transplants that i knew within that time too other people you know and and even having these conversations with other CF patients in the CF conferences and stuff, you never know who you're going to meet and you don't know what their story is. And I had to really like figure out how to navigate, like what I wanted to know, or, or sometimes I didn't know what would kind of get be triggering and like create some fear or trepidation in me. Um, after my transplant, um, around, like, I think it was either around Christmas or on Christmas. I called, um, my grandma, um, my grandma Shetler on my mom's side and she had been the one to help get me diagnosed when I was little. And she had always had a certain ownership over, over just my walk with CF. And she, she had the medical knowledge she had, you know, so it was like, she had, she and i were very connected in in that context so being able to call her and be like grandma hi like it's me and her first question to me and granted she's like 98 at this point but you know still sharp as a tack but also like maybe maybe not as filtered
0: yeah maybe (laughs) too sharp
1: (laughs) yeah, yeah maybe too sharp she goes so how long are they giving you now and i was like oh wow what
0: so she's thinking like there's been an extension here, or like we've you've had some time tacked on. I don't how know how much time is that. Like, or okay,
2: yeah. D- did I it? Mean, and that I was, was the first just, time
0: like, you got a question like that from yeah. anyone, and it was okay, catches you off guard.
1: I, I was like, well, especially from her. I don't know. Yeah. Like, I was just so shocked, and and I was like, well, I don't know. We haven't. I haven't really asked about it. Which was kind of true, but I knew the statistics, but I wasn't going to talk about them with her. Like, that's my life. I'm not going to, I've already lived a life with statistics and I'm, I know that it, it can have a good effect. It can also have a bad effect. It can, you know, like it's always a mind And I was like, well, I don't know. I haven't really, like, asked them about that. I'm just kind of taking it a day at a time. And she's like, well, that's all you can do. And I'm like, oh, my God.
0: She backs down pretty quickly. But, yeah, but the question has been asked.
1: But also, it's like, I could ask her the same thing. You know, like, how long are they giving you? You're 98 now. Like, I also know that she's, she and I had had enough conversations, like, the last time i had seen her you know um another person in their family in her extended family had just turned 100 and they went to her birthday and i was like so grandma what do you want to do for your 100th birthday she's like oh god i hope i'm not here okay and you know yeah. but anyway it was. Just... i was gonna
0: say if you were in like a kind of more of a ornery or combative mood that day when she <laughs> asks how long do you have you could have said probably longer than you grandma or something like that but uh you probably made the you probably picked the, the she, more mature way.
1: She, you know, she was always the grandma that kind of inspired like that awe a little bit and that like yeah. respect and, and, um, and we had a good relationship and, you know, we could kind of laugh together, but I was just like, no, what to say. And, but
0: in the years since, um, you know, the, the last few years does that kind of thing come more into focus or is it a thing that you still are like, I don't really, I don't need to worry about that or think about that.
1: Yeah. It was interesting because before transplant, I had always been very comfortable with the conversation around death and like more of the existential kind of things. Like during, during my waiting time, I actually listened to a couple of different books on palliative care and, and They were. It was always just super helpful for me to lean into stuff that I felt like was kind of that was a a distinct possibility. I I've I've always wanted to like die well. I I I, one of my fears is that it would sneak up on me that I wouldn't know, Hmm. and that you know a lot of times like situations that people can get themselves into where it's just like, we just have to fight and we have to fight and we have to fight and not. And all you're doing is like prolonging this person's life without any sense of quality, without any sense of like dignity. Right. And that was very, that thought has always been very scary to me. Um, And so being able to be like, well, if I don't want that, then I need to be very in tune with my body and I need to be, understanding of this process and I need to, um, be able to inform other people about what I want and also to be able to bring them into this larger conversation. When I started the transplant process, I actually sent a letter to my family, to, to both of our immediate families and just explained very clearly as clearly as I could, like, this is how I'm holding this this is what I need from you. This is what I don't, you know, like, and these are the, these are the, and I sent them like three different Ted talks slash podcasts um, that of thinkers um, that I felt like encompassed how, who was informing this philosophy that I was going to be moving forward with. But that was, You know, whether or not any of them read or listened to any of that stuff, they at least knew and they've known me, you know, my whole life. So it wasn't a surprise, I think, to get a letter like that from me about like how I would be moving through this. And if they want to participate in that, then they need to be able to utilize this language.
0: Yeah. I mean, it reminds me uh, of the conversation we had earlier about the time where you tell your parents, well, I, I don't want people they can do it on their own but i don't want people praying for me like yeah. to me or, you it seems like you've from a from a young age you've been good about boundaries and and letting the people around you or that care for you know how you want to be cared for and and not be cared for so right. yeah i get it
1: yeah as i as i've gotten older and figured it out that was a big thing when i was in the hospital you know after transplant i was completely immobile and in a lot of pain and just immediately having to be like, I think I, I cannot choose to try to feel dignity in a physical sense of like, I can't use the bathroom by myself. I can't clean myself. I can't, I can't do it. I can't even like feed myself ice at this point or take mm-hmm. of water in the first few days. So, you know, I I never I didn't really go into it with that sense of like, oh, I'll be able to like stay covered in a way or like <laughs> know, protect my body or or feel yeah. a sense of modesty. It was just kind of like my body is not my own right now and my yeah. sense of dignity has to come from somewhere else. You know, and I was so glad that that you know, to be able to like not have that as part of like any sense of like anxiety or worry. You know that's a huge it's a huge component of allowing people to care for you in a way that you literally cannot care for yourself, but that you mm-hmm. can find a space of of dignity in yourself of like how you respond to it and your pleases and thank yous and your manners and 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 just remember like this is their job like they're, they're not, you know, they, they tried to maintain my dignity in a way that I wasn't even worried about, you know? Yeah. And, um, and in spite of the immobility and the pain and, and, um, and the being on pain medication and being emotional and loopy and all of those things, (laughs) Um, it was a very peaceful process. I don't feel like it came out of that month of, of being in the hospital in any way traumatized or, or anything like that. Um, I know there was, you know, a certain sense of maybe body trauma that I, I did I don't feel or necessarily understand that probably just needs to come out through movement and, um, and time. But as far as like mentally and emotionally, it was very peaceful. And, um, and I think COVID, you know, kind of like the fire allowed for a sense of, of calm and rest because nobody else could come and see me except my husband. And he got to be there the whole time I was in ICU. Um, And then once I went to the step down unit and I was, you know, out of the woods and just now into like physical recovery of like learning to like gaining my muscles again and walking and some of those things. Um, uh, The, the hospital went into lockdown and didn't allow any visitors. So I was on my own for that. But again, that was like very similar to any of my other times in the hospital when I kind of preferred to be alone because I knew what to do and yeah. I could advocate for myself at that point and, um, and I was exhausted, you know, so right. any downtime I had, I was just sleeping, um, or, and, or listening to Harry Potter, which is what I chose to listen to throughout the healing process. Okay. <laughs> you know, the first year was as hard as they said, it was probably harder. I, um, ended up having some issues with my liver, um, around March and got sepsis and had to be relisted for a liver transplant. Thankfully that kind of my liver, cause they were like, your liver could heal itself. Like it could just adjust, but at this yeah. point we need to make sure you're on the list. So if something happens, okay. if it doesn't go that way that we can, you know, get you a new one.
2: Yeah. As be ready. Will.
1: Um, thankfully, my liver did turn around and um, and figured out how to mm. be happy in my body. Then, in um, August of that same year, I ended up getting a lymphoma cancer, mm. um, and due to my anti-rejection meds had gotten too high, and um, the um, Epstein-Barr virus had activated in my body, um, which people will just have to like research that because I okay. can't explain it. Yeah. Um, and, and so I had to go through six months of chemo or six rounds of chemo, which ended up being about six months. And, um,
0: gosh, did, all, all this time, are you still in Seattle or is there a point where you get to
1: No, I came come home to Anchorage, to okay. Anchorage in May. And I was feeling really good, like most of April and May, like once I had kind of recovered from the sepsis and, um, and that like liver issue, um, was dormant ish, you know? Um, but, uh, yeah, so it was home it, like I got home, I think the end of May. I had all of June. I felt great, like better than I'd ever felt. I had good energy, I was just i like I came home and we were in a new a new space we lived in the duplex next to my in laws and so I was like rearranging within hours of being home and just okay. settling in and loving every minute and then in July, I started to um to develop really bad hip pain and I didn't know where it was coming from. I didn't know which of my, you know, seven doctors to call. I, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, I ended up going to the ER and they did a CT scan and they found a, um, a mass. And so then my liver team two days later was like, you need to come down immediately and we need to figure this out. Okay. And so then at that point is when I was diagnosed, but I was able to come back to Anchorage about six weeks later and finish my um, my chemo uh stuff up here and I've been able to stay up here ever since. Except for okay. like, you know, checkups and stuff um back to Seattle. Yeah, within okay. like three treatments, I had my okay. like midway um scan and it was the mass was gone and I didn't have it. I just had to finish okay. out the treatments though. And yeah. um but yeah, I haven't had any issues since and um again that's where it came into play with the liver and lung teams having yeah. to figure out together what my dosage of answer rejection medication should be because clearly it had been too high okay um and so um so yeah that was you know that was a tough year for sure i definitely yeah. realized that i was uh like i quit my small group i quit everything like the writing group i was like I cannot do anything that has to do with personal growth at this point. Like no more personal growth until further notice. <laughs> okay. And um, I just let myself be as much as I could. And there were yeah. just, you know, like I at least had those couple months of like really great health so that I could, but it still, it felt like it just took forever for me to get to that point where I didn't you know, even though I could breathe and that was amazing, I still still had like the same or less energy than I did prior to transplant. And I think the energy thing is was always my biggest deal because it's like you can figure out how to breathe shallowly, but if you don't have the energy, you just can't do anything. And so the restrictions and the just, it was exhausting. It was mentally exhausting. The vaccine conversations were swirling around me with family. Okay. And without going into like a ton of detail around it, it was, it added a lot to my emotional health and my emotional, like just depletion of like, I'm having to defend myself in a space when I should not have to defend myself yeah and i'm having to make medical arguments that to people that i love and i i don't have i don't have that space like the point is i want to see you and i can't see you unless um the vaccine happens regardless of what you think so if that's your choice then that's your choice but but to get again to this point of being able to to release that anxiety and that responsibility, and that sense of like, if I just say the right thing, if I just could figure out how to make an argument to them about about this, then then they would acquiesce, and I could be able to see them, and I could be able to like, like, and then yeah. everything would be okay, and finally having to just be like, that's not true. You need to move yeah. on. And take care of yourself. And
0: a a I'm I don't really have the energy to do that right now. And but, b I'm not positive that if I did, it would make a difference. So I just have to let this go. Right, right. Yeah,
1: it was definitely it. like it was a come to Jesus moment for me. It was probably like one of those like very rare like like spiritual moments that I had to really release and just be like, I can't do this. And I've always been able to figure out how to compromise or how to um to just be okay with the risk and i'm not this time like i literally am diagnosed with cancer like and i'm thinking about yeah or who will or who won't get a vaccine um and my 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 thoughts should be on like how do i take care of myself the best i'm literally still (laughs) Yeah. still in recovery. And I have cancer now. And once I felt like I was able to like, truly in that, like, spiritually, like, definitive, even maybe a spiritual warfare moment, which I really hesitate to use that language. But that is kind of how it felt. Where It was just like this broke. And I was able yeah. to kind of like, mentally just move on and be like, I need to respect everybody's decision i believe in body autonomy i believe in personal choice and this is their personal choice and i have to to say like that makes me really sad and to move on and that's it and not that it hasn't continued to be like a difficult thing just in general but it's less now thankfully and um since transplant you know since i finished my last Uh, cancer treatment and on December 3rd and since then like being able to actually be in full recovery I haven't had any other issues or setbacks the recovery itself um has been long and arduous and um and full of you know just awareness of what I can and cannot handle and what, again, coming back to like, what, what is going to help me give me life and bring me joy and, um, and surprising, you know, surprisingly and unsurprisingly, those, those places of like sitting down and doing art and stuff has sort of been there, but it's been more about tr- trying to figure out how to reestablish myself and embody the nature and the space that I'm in, in Alaska. So and blueberry picking and I've started doing horses again and, um, oh. you know, and all the
0: things that were all the things that were a part of life early for you yeah. are like so important to you. Yes. Oh, that's amazing.
1: So, um, so yeah, I, I'm right on the cusp of, of two years, well, three years since transplant, but I'm saying two years in recovery because the first year didn't
0: count. Right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, and Usually, with anybody, they will tell you after a big trauma or a big a big transition, it takes about two years for you to come back to yourself. And I would mm. say I'm right on track with that.
0: Okay, like you can, like you can sense that 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 that, that season of mm-hmm. what is next is is close. Yes. or is coming. Okay. Yes. Do you have any sense yet of of what that might look like? Like what what your hopes are, what your expectations are, like what the, what the next phase of, of life might look like for you?
1: Um, I think that's been part of this recovery season is, one, trying, me continuing to try to jumpstart, like, okay, I'm going to do this thing, or I'm going to get back to writing, or I'm going to like start this project. And then it just completely, like, not working like my brain doesn't work that way yet it it like my my mind has been the last thing to really be able to handle um any kind of like sustained thoughtful use like i'm still thinking i'm still all of those things but as far as like focusing on a project um you know it that kind of like attention span hasn't been there as, as much yeah um but as far as like moving so now so continuing to come back to like you have to just let it be you have to you know it's two years you know and you're just trying to like cheat the system here um but where i am now and being able to look into the future is going you know i don't know exactly what i will be doing i'm starting to kind of be able to i've i've connected with Um, some amazing artists here in town and they're really excited to have me um, help them expand what they're doing and some of their visions that line up Mm. with things that I'm really excited about and um, I've been really intentional about trying to put myself into places where I know there's a community of people that I want to get to know that I want to make friends with versus just leaving it up to kind of like random meetings but like Mm -hmm. putting myself in a barn with horse people with horses and putting myself you know introducing myself to artists who are doing things that I am excited about and want to be part of and um and so I'm doing some event planning right now and hoping to continue to do that but at the same time I know it's not going to be it's going to be bigger and better than I think I can foresee because it's going to be different and interesting. And the first word that kind of came into my mind was like, I'm actually going to be stepping. I feel like I'm stepping into my power, like as somebody who's over 40 now, as somebody who's lived a lot of life, as somebody who has been through some things that I really feel like give me a sense of, of what to expect from people and also what I can say, like, you know, I'm not here for that. Um yeah. like moving out of the people-pleasing person and being into the more like empowered nurturer and being like, Yeah, I'm gonna help you with this, and this is how we're gonna do it, and this is what I'm feeling, and um being being less um up for for suffering fools i guess yeah whatever it sounds like but i think um you know this this recovery season has really been it surprised me with um the amount of of lack of empathy that i've had for people um Hmm. and uh not hopefully not being mean to them, but in myself just being like you say you're tired. Why? Really? I'm going through chemo. Yeah. And but also trying to make space for going like, hey, if you have a medical thing or you're feeling whatever, there's space for that. But but I need to understand the context that you're the person that you're speaking to right now. Right. I'm probably not the person to give you that empathy and sympathy that you're looking for.
0: Yeah. Um, And that makes sense.
1: I think kind of like owning that, like I don't need to be all things to all people and I'm kind of who you can come to when you're ready to actually think deeply about this. When you're actually ready to make some changes in your life that don't perpetuate a cycle of you constantly being in the same place.
0: No, I, I think I understand that. I mean, you talked um, earlier about that, that desire that like, even when you, like you want to care for people, serve people, but historically, when you don't have the strength to do that, you've, you've told yourself like, well, it's, it's still a service to them to let them care for me or or them come to to me and offer their, their gifts to me. That makes them feel better. Right. But that's really different than someone who maybe is like bringing tough things to you or, um, and like having, yeah, I, I get that how, how that would be a, like, there's a different posture needed there that might even be a little bit more defensive and yeah. it makes sense for you to be defensive or to draw that line with what you've, you've been going through and are, and are still like, you have to, my assumption would be, you have to decide very carefully how to spend your energy and time. And you may have more of it now than you did a few years ago. Like you may have more energy to give, Mm -hmm. but it, but it still needs to be your energy to give, not for someone else to take. So. um,
1: And I think too, the difference between physical energy and emotional energy. um, Yeah. that's been significant where it's like, I have the physical energy to take care of horses and hang out with my nephews. I don't have the emotional energy to engage with other types of energy that bring me down or that Mm exhaust me or that, um, you know, are not gonna be stimulating or, or, or helpful in some way. And, um, And, you know, I would I would just say, like, one of the things I really want to put out there for people in the world is like being sick can be a blessing, even if it's just for a little bit. But it has something to teach you about your body, because when you come into something that that allows you to move so low in your energy, you realize what actually is giving to you and what is taking from you. Whereas before a lot of times we're healthy enough or we're we're strong enough to that our that our senses get dulled. We don't actually know what we want or what is giving us life or what is taking life from us. And when you get sick for an extended period of time, it's very clear. And there is a kind of a a no BS radar. That can
2: mm-hmm.
1: actually emerge um, that is has been there all along, but has been harder to see or to access or to listen to because you technically can or have the energy before. Um, and I'd say like that has been the gift of my illness in the longevity of time, but it's also been a major, major boon and gift of this season to be able to move into this second chapter of my life where I never thought that I could feel this way. I never thought Hmm. I would have this kind of opportunity. Yeah. Um, And I don't want to waste it. I don't want to go back to some of the old habits of trying to mother everybody you know, and in that kind of like classical mythical sense of like the three stages of womanhood, which is made in mother crone, like I'm entering mm-hmm. crone stage and I'm super <laughs> happy about it.
0: <laughs> okay. Uh, that's a, uh, but if I did like pull quotes, like there were on the back of uh, like movie, movie posters or stuff like that, <laughs> that'd be a pretty good one maybe for, for this episode. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm grateful for the chance to to get to see you and and talk yeah. with you here and I thank you for the time it's really good to catch up thank you for the mm-hmm. vulnerability and transparency you have with with sharing your story um i'm so i'm so grateful for for who you've been for the life you've had like already um and 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 that would be enough but i'm so excited for you and for your family and for your friendships and for all the people that, that, that still are going to have an opportunity to, to be mothered or to be cared for um, or, or learn from you. Thanks Elizabeth. Have a, a great rest of your day. Hope Thank to talk you. to you again or see you all soon. Right.
2: Yeah, you too. Talk okay. later.
0: Right. Right. Hi, it's Sam. And I've got one more thing before we end. Uh, you've heard how these talks go now. And so if you're interested in finding time with me to have a story so far session of your own, check out oakroots.net and book a time for yourself. I hope to talk with you soon.